Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode eight in our series for 2016. And today's date is Thursday, March 24th, which means we're a day earlier because of Good Friday. So, Leon, we've got James Law of Envato talking to us today. That's right. He's going to be talking to us all about Envato, how it's created an amazing marketplace. And it's amazing to talk to him. So that'll be a terrific interview. Yeah, it will indeed. I mean, they've got something like 5 million worldwide customers. Extraordinary. That's right. And uh, James Law is a human resources director there, so it's going to be great talking to him. And after that, we're going to have a chat with uh, BT economist uh, Chris Caton all about the Federal Reserve, which had held interest rates on hold, but is being much more cautious about the global economy. So we're going to be talking about that. Good. That'll be fascinating too. Anyway, let's first of all have a chat to James Law. James Law, tell us about Envato, where it came from and how it became quite so successful. Sure. Um, So it was started by a husband and wife team who were Flash designers back when Flash was a big deal about nine years ago and their best mate and they were looking for places to sell their designs that would support them traveling uh, and working. And there wasn't anywhere specifically that was what they expected it to be that looked after Flash designers and helped them sell stuff. So they created that platform themselves to to sell their own stuff primarily, um, and that launched a the, the business that we see now. Um, so uh, yeah, nine years old, started by family. They got their uh, Collis got his brother involved down the track, and his dad is also um, the chairman. So, family company that was born in Australia, but is a global company now. Now, so basically, Envato is basically an eBay for web designers, isn't it? Yeah, so it's a marketplace that allows technical people to buy and sell stuff, um, and that can be anything from WordPress templates to video files, stock video files, stock photos, music, anything that a creative might need to... Uh, Build something. So, how many how many clients have you global operate globally now? How many clients have you got at the moment? Oh, there's about about five million people in our community, and that includes buyers, sellers, contributors to our Tuts program. We also run an online uh, tutorial platform called Tuts Plus, uh, and then we've got freelancers as well through our Invado Studio which is, allows non-technical people like me to access technical people to help them with this stuff. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a, a big community of people who are involved in Envato and, and, and use it and learn from it. So, 5 million people, I mean, that's from around the world. Where, where are the big markets for you guys? Our big markets are out of Australia. They're, they're, they're predominantly the US, Europe, Asia, uh, and, and US is, is still our biggest market to this day, yeah. Competitors? Um- would it wouldn't be anybody like Alibaba or eBay, but it'd be somebody who wanted to get in the marketplace again with those. Yeah, so there's other marketplaces that are that that we compete with. No one has probably the breadth that we do, but there are people who definitely bat deeper in the verticals that we play in. So you might have, say, someone competing for you, against you in, say, the area of templates or someone competing against you in the area of uh, stock photos. Correct. That's exactly right. So there's some big, massive players in stock photos and there's some great companies like Creative Markets in, in themes. Um, so there's definitely competitors out there in, in each 
in each vertical, but we think we've got the breadth covered. So really you're riding the digital wave, aren't you? Yeah, look, I think we came along at a good time as, um, as companies who are successful in a digital environment do. They, it's hard work and creativity and it's also good luck. Um, and we came along at a time where people were looking for a place to buy and sell these sorts of items, these sorts of, this sort of media. Um, and it's allowed people from all over the world to earn a living from their, from their bedrooms um, and, and create something that they can, they can, that they've often taught themselves to do, that they can create and sell online um, with minimal overheads and create a life for themselves that supports their passion. I mean, located in Melbourne, you're catering for a world market. Is that an issue? Um, look, at it, it's not really. No, I think um, obviously we're a long way away from the rest of the world physically and um, time you know, from a time zone perspective, but a lot of the, the inf- in interactions that, that, that our community has with us are um, automated and, and, and can be done at any time. There's always some challenges around governance and, and, and how our financial governance and regulations uh, interact with those of other parts of the world. Um, but from, a, from you know, the other side of the coin is Australia's a great place to live. We can attract the best and brightest in Australia to work for a global company, which they're really appreciative of. Um, talent, probably one of the difficulties of being in Melbourne. So Melbourne's tiny, Australia's tiny, Melbourne's even smaller. So trying to find the best and brightest technical people, enough of them, sometimes can be challenging because the, the, the pool is a lot smaller than it would be in the States or, or Europe or, or Asia. So um, that can be a challenge, but we've worked through it. And we've just opened a US uh, office, uh, which is the first, our first foray into, the, into having a global presence outside of Melbourne. Um, so that, that will help us with some of those challenges. What sort of skills are you looking for? Um, so, yeah, we, we have a huge team, well, relatively big team for our size of business of Ruby on Rails developers who are engineers who write code, as amongst other things, to create what we see, what you see when you go into Invado.com and um, ThemeForest.net and, and, and to our subdomains. So um, that's a that's probably pr- primarily the biggest part of our business. And then the the other areas that are that we're always looking for is product management. So people to to take the strategy to create the products, the what, and then to work with the engineers to to work out how we we develop that into code that. Uh, works and, and looks good and hangs together well. So it's a very technical business. As we've grown, that's escalated into support services as well. So um, you know we've got a highly specialised legal team who deal a lot with intellectual property, which is quite um, niche. Um, and then we've got a finance team who deals a lot with global financial regulatory requirements and tax and things. So we're building a specialist team. They're not. We're not always hiring specialist people because they don't always exist in Australia. But um, we're, we're building that team in Melbourne now, which is pretty exciting. How do you handle that differences in language? I mean, if you're dealing in Europe, there are, what, 30, 40 languages you might have to yeah. handle. How does that work? Yeah, it's challenging. I think we're lucky in that English is a globally recognised language, and particularly online, I think, and we deal a lot with people online, not, not 
over the phone or face-to-face because of where we are and how people engage. So we're lucky in that sense. But it's something we're looking at is what um, obligation as an international global organization and as a global citizen and from a commercial perspective, how are we looking at globalizing our business and translating what we do into into other languages so that it's more accessible. So at the moment, we don't do a lot of it, but we've dipped our toe in that water. Um, we also have a global workforce outside of Australia who, who work in different parts of the world. So that's exciting and we get access to people from, you know, everywhere, all around the world, anywhere you can imagine. Um, we've got people who are working on a contract basis for us. So uh, that allows us some access to people who speak different languages. So for the client, uh, do you operate a subscription model or a straight flat fee contract model? How does that work? Yeah, uh, it depends um, is, the, is the short answer. So there are opportunities, usually in the marketplaces, it's, it's a, a flat fee depending on the licensing you're looking for. But then in something like Tuts Plus, our online tutorial business, you can purchase a subscription which gives you access to a whole load of content. So it's really dependent on the marketplace and the, and the, um, the piece that you're trying to pick up. And where do you think you are in terms of of growth? I mean, obviously, there's a huge amount of headroom in this business, isn't there? Yeah, look, there is. We think that there's a huge possibility. At the moment, a lot of our customers are technical people. So they are people who often uh, run small agencies or small business to build websites for their customers. And they take our templates and they put them together into something that's um, pretty and, man- and and works, and then sell it on to the to their clients. Um, so we think that there is huge opportunity for that to expand, and maybe even give um, non technical people the same access in an easier way to some of that creative content. Um, so we think that that's a big part of it. And then on a, online education is just going through the roof. So there's opportunities there. Um, more and more people are becoming technically savvy. So the opportunity to introduce them to people who need technical people to work for them or with them. So, yeah, we see that there's, there's huge growth in those markets. So, and you, in terms of client, you could spread across from a, a big corporation that wanted to get into a digital outlook uh, down to somebody in a, in a bedroom. Yeah, look, I think we, we probably have a ceiling before the big corporation. So, the big corporates will often go to a digital agency uh, who, as part of their offering, uh, if they were building a website as part of their offering, would most there would be a chance that they would be buying things from our um, our marketplaces to help build that offering. So we're definitely involved. I think we're probably at the small to medium end of that, though, um, where there's huge volume. Whereas the big players usually have their own agencies who are the the middleman between between us and the big corporates. But basically, you're the supplier to the supplier of the e-corporation. Yeah, often we are. That's exactly right. Okay, James Law, thank you very much for a fascinating dissertation. Pleasure. Thanks. Envato is extraordinary, Leon. As we said, a fascinating interview on how to grow a big market worldwide online. And what a business to establish. It's quite extraordinary. Yeah. Anyway, let's now have a chat with Chris Caton. We're going to talk about the US Fed and the global economy. Chris Caton, the uh, Fed did as everyone expected and uh, kept rates on hold, but they seem to be much more cautious. Well, yes. Uh, last December, when they raised rates for the first time, they they indicated there were likely to be four more rate rises over the course of 2016. 
that would have um, almost certainly have put one in March. We know they didn't do that. But not only have they not done that, they've cut their expected rate rises for the rest of the year uh, back to two. That still leaves them a bit more aggressive than the market is expecting. But um, they did talk about the global economic and financial environment. Um, and so presumably that's one reason for a more of a go-slow policy. Um, I think of it in slightly different terms. Um, in the past month, we've also had more easing from Japan, not much more from Japan, but a bit, but another significant easing from Europe. And it would be an odd world where um, where the Fed was raising rates with any degree of aggression whatsoever while the rest of the world was still easing. Right. Well, Europe has uh, moved into negative uh, interest rates. I mean, are we expecting similar with the Fed at any stage? No, I doubt that very much. I mean, bear in mind that the federal funds rate was zero to a quarter, and then it was raised to a quarter to a half. So um, they have um, acknowledged in uh, in recent congressional testimony that they've they've looked at you know at the feasibility, if you like, of um, of negative rates. But that's not a forecast. They're going there. That's just a contingency. Um, if they did go there, what legal issues would there be? What practical issues would there be? The um, it's worthwhile remembering that since the GFC, every single developed country that has begun to raise rates to get them back to something like normal um, has then had to back away that with just one exception, and that is the United States, or perhaps we should say the United States so far. Right. And uh, what struck me with the uh, Fed statement uh, from the Federal Open Market Committee was uh, the amount of caution. Frankly, uh, no one really knows what's going to be happening. Uh, Correct, because on the face of it and taken in isolation, it wouldn't be hard to make a strong case for higher rates in the US. Their their unemployment rate is 4.9%. And up until this meeting, that was also their estimate of what they call the NARU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. Um, they've now dropped that estimate to 4.8, which is almost too cute to be true. The other thing, of course, that's um, in the Fed's mandate is inflation. And um, they have a target for the... Um, what they call the consumption expenditure deflator, and it is a target, not a ceiling, of about 2%. And the the core of that deflator currently sits around 1.7 and is on the way up. So, um, you know, I think this is something that a lot of people have missed. Inflation in the United States is clearly rising. It's not a problem, but it's moving nicely towards their target. So if you just looked at those things, if you looked at the labour market, looked at inflation, you'd say, well, it's it's about time not to start tightening policy, but to start normalising interest rates. Right. So uh, the next rate rise, we'd probably expect, I mean, I've read we're expecting it sometime around June. Is that right? June now seems like the most the most likely month for a rate rise. What could stop that? Well, another outburst of financial market volatility, signs of economic weakness elsewhere. You know, the, the Fed's kind of caught in a bit of a trap. They know rates should be higher, but the but the act of moving them higher creates um, uncertainty, creates volatility. It's very hard to do that. But yeah, right now. June looks like a pretty good month. I think the market's assessment of a rate rise in June is still quite low. It's still around 38%. Right, right. And, of course, uh, what we saw last time was uh, when the Fed did raise rates, it created all sorts of uh, political and market 
implications for it, didn't it? Uh, well, that's correct. Well, the Fed rate rise in December, although it was widely expected, does seem to have been one of the factors that um, led to that uh, market tumult in uh, January. But but on the face of it, um, a small one in that it had a lot of company, if you like. Uh, I may have um, talked about this last month, but, you know, we're worried about um, uh, currencies and currency wars. We were worried about China. We were worried about commodity prices. We were worried about capital flows from um, – uh, the emerging world, and we were worried about credit spreads. So uh, the the interest rate rise was part of that story, but it was by no means the only part. Right. So, I mean, what implications does that have when the dollar has been going up? Um, what implications does that have here? The, the Australian dollar has been going up. Yes. Yes. Uh, a month ago, uh, it was around about 71 cents, and now it's 76. That's quite a big move in the month. Um, about half of that move is because the uh, US dollar has in fact gone down a bit so that's just pushed it up um, but uh, and the rest of it i suppose comes from the fact that commodity prices particularly iron ore prices seem to have bottomed and uh, the the market in australia has reduced the probability of a further rate cut in australia um, i find this interesting because um, They've reduced the probability, so the exchange rate's risen. So Chris Caton's response to that is to increase his probability of a rate cut. Well, yes. I mean, I would imagine uh, the RBA will be doing a fair bit of jawboning on the dollar, sort of talking it down. Uh, Glenn Stevens uh, speaks on um, the 22nd of March, and, uh, yeah, that will be. Um, he may well make some attempt, but um, I think, the, you see, the, the, I guess the problem is every developed country's central bank wants a weaker currency, but obviously they can't all have them. And I think the Reserve Bank is 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 pretty pure, and, and I think they don't want to be seen, basically, to be engaging in some kind of, you know, competitive jawboning down of the currency. They When they say that they, they think it should be lower, that's an honest assessment. They're not trying, basically, to... Um, uh, to beggar anybody, you know, any of our neighbours, they're not trying to steal market share. That is just their honest assessment. But it's a, it's a fine line between that and doing what everybody else is trying to do. Now, uh, of course, uh, at the same time, I mean, you're, you're saying the RBA will move on interest rates simply because of the dollar. You believe it? No, no, no. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there's an increased chance that will happen if they are going to cut again. Uh, it almost certainly will be in May, and, and it will follow, let's say, a surprisingly good or surprisingly low uh, CPI result for the March quarter. So May is the month that is where it's going to happen if it does happen. But right now, my suspicion is um, they've been a reluctant cutter for a long, long time. And, you know, there were signs some months ago that the heat seemed to be coming out of the housing market. Well, um, that's probably the correct assessment still, but it's not as if housing is collapsing. So um, they might be concerned that if they cut rates again, all they do is just basically re- reignite the fire under housing. Well, all the house prices seem to be doing at the moment uh, is not so much a collapse, but a moderation of the prices. That's correct. There was something of a flatness late last year and going into this year, but recent data, and you know, we get this stuff almost daily, um, recent data suggests, um, house prices still on the way up, particularly in the, uh, in the big two in Melbourne, particularly in Melbourne and to a lesser extent in Sydney. Right, right. And uh, what's your assessment of the latest unemployment figures? I mean, they went down 5.8%, but then there were fewer people looking for work. 
yes, um, the, you have to bear in mind these month-to-month movements are, are simply estimates and frequently dominated by um, uh, statistical noise. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it, essentially the 5.8 we got in February suggest, basically said, well, we never should have believed the jump up to six in January. Now, having said that, if you go to the other side, to the employment side, we have had three months of, um, well, basically of no gain in jobs. And on, on, on its own, that would be worrying. But what you have to remember even there is that the previous three months were three months of very strong employment growth. My reading overall, the um, labour market is doing okay uh, and unemployment is probably still trending downwards. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, Chris Caton, thank you very much for your time. It's been my pleasure. Well, now, yeah, what do you think, Leon? Well, the fundamental issue is no one really knows what's ahead, but, uh, you know, so let's just wait and see. Yeah, there's an awful lot of waiting and seeing around the world at the moment, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, and a fair bit happening globally, Gary. That's right, including a resumption of jihadist activity in Europe, which is starting to be a bit of a worry. That's right, and uh, global stock markets fallen in response to the Belgium terror attacks that reportedly killed 34 people at the airport and subway stations and unnerved investors. And in the US, the Dow fell 63 points soon after the opening bell, while the S&P 500 slipped 0.5%. All European markets opened lower, with France's CAC down 1%, Germany's DAX index falling 0.6%. The FTSE in the UK was also lower, down 48.28 points, or 0.8%, at 61,136. The euro was also trading lower against most major world currency, and the pound dropped against all its major peers with speculation the blast might boost the case for Britain leaving the European Union. The price of gold rose for the first time in four days, and the hardest-hit stocks, not surprisingly, were in the travel sectors. Shares in airlines, airports and hotels all took a hit. IAG, the airline group that includes British Airways, fell 3.4%, while Ryanair, Lufthansa, EasyJet, American Airlines and Air France KLM also fell. TripAdvisor and hotels groups Marriott, Intercontinental and Accor were down too. Frappor, which operates a hub in Frankfurt, slipped 2%, and shares in airports to Paris fell 4%. And so, you know, that's, I, I think investors are very, very unnerved about what happened in Belgium. Yeah, and the airlines are singularly uh, vulnerable in Europe because the alternative is very, very good train services. That's right. But, you know, it's a real worry because uh, obviously investors were quite rattled on, on waking up to discover this news. Yeah, it's a bit like the high days of the IRA when, uh, you know, London was uh, in a great deal of distress and the same thing in uh, all across Europe now with the uh, Islamic State uh, jihads. Yeah, and uh, meanwhile in China, the People's Bank of China Governor Zhu Junjun sounded a warning over rising debt levels. He said corporate lending as a ratio to gross domestic product had become too high, and he said the country had to develop more robust capital markets. Now, China has still has a problem with illegal fundraising and financial services are insufficient, and Zhu said in a speech at the China Development Forum in Beijing on Sunday that the country still needs regulation to guard against excessive 
leverage in foreign currencies. Now, Chinese leaders are struggling to balance between meeting a target of at least 6.5% average annual growth to 2020 while addressing a growing corporate debt levels. And corporate debt alone now stands, would you believe, 160% of China's GDP, according to the OECD, Gary? Yeah, and that doesn't include the shadow banking that the uh, Chinese uh, People's Bank is worried about because uh, there's no real control there and there's a huge amount of money swimming about in it. It's really, 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 really bad. Now to Australia, Gary, and the budget will be brought forward to May the 3rd with both Houses of Federal Parliament being recalled to sit on April the 18th to consider government legislation reinstating a building industry watchdog. Now the Senate will be given three weeks to pass the legislation or face a double dissolution election and it looks like we're heading for a double dissolution, hence the May the 3rd budget. Yeah, I think one of the things you might uh, think about right now is that uh, uh, you shouldn't ever make an error and say Malcolm hasn't got a plan. It's taken a little while to work up to it. But getting that change into the uh, election uh, mode for the Senate has been uh, given him a big, uh, a big boost in terms of uh, the influence he's got over the government. The question is uh, what kind of Senate he's going to get. It might be a Pyrrhic victory. So let's just watch this space. Yeah, but the cross benches may well go, a lot of them. Yeah, but I would imagine Glenn Lazarus and Jackie Lambie will be back and uh, Nick Xenophon, of course, will keep his seat. Uh, Nick will always be there, yeah. But the others might be out. Yeah, but so, anyway, let's just watch that space. Now, um, consumer confidence slipped 0.3% in the week ending March 20, according to the latest ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index. But that followed a strong 4.5% rise over the previous fortnight. And confidence is now sitting 3% above its long-run average, and four-week moving average is on an upward trend. What's interesting, Gary, about this survey is that confidence in the economic outlook actually rose last week, and the sub-index on economic condition in the next 12 months rose 3.3%. It's now just sitting a touch below its long-run average, and the sub-index on economic conditions in the next five years also improving, rose 2.7%. These strong fitters, I think, are because of unemployment falling to 5.8% and the government's decision to bring forward the budget with the prospect of a double dissolution election, which is making everything a lot clearer. Well, that indeed, yeah, a lot of the doubts going on. And also, uh, Malcolm is working to, you know, undo some of the things that were done during the Abbott era in terms of healthcare and education. That's right. Now, what's really interesting is that uh, Australian business is being warned that the corporate regulator will have their corporate culture and ethics under the microscope. Australian Securities Investments Commission Greg Medcraft has told companies that they need to have a positive culture safeguarding the public. And he says businesses now are under increasing scrutiny through social media, the 24-hour news cycle. And he cited numerous examples of Australian business and ethics and culture gone wrong, like the Cominsure life insurance scandal, the continuing financial planning issues, and the alleged rigging of the bank bill swap rate now subject to legal action between ASIC and the ANZ. And he said ASIC is now including culture in its risk-based reviews of companies. And I think that's a real issue, Gary. It is indeed. And of course, it's highlighted uh, this week with Elmer Funk Cooper at the uh, ASX. Well, yes, it was the same day that Medcraft said that. Cooper quit 
his $3.5 million a year job over allegations that he knew of a $200,000 payment to the family of Cambodian strongman Hun Sen. Now, the ASX chairman Rick Halliday-Smith announced the resignation as the market closed at 4pm, saying the board had accepted Elmer wanted to direct his full focus to the investigation, which might be made to the Tabcorp matter. Now, the $200,000 payment was made under his watch, is now the focus of an international anti-bribery investigation led by the Australian Federal Police. Now, Fairfax Media revealed last week the police were investigating whether the payment was made by Tabcor while Mr Funk Cooper was the company's chief executive and whether it breached Australia's foreign bribery laws. Now, Tabcor at the time was investigating a lucrative online gaming business in Cambodia leading up to the 2010 FIFA World Cup and it channeled the payment via the United States to a company run by the sister of Hun Sen. And also now there are revelations that Funky Kumpa is himself the subject of a criminal investigation in Australia and the US. And isn't that amazing? That's astonishing. You know, it really is. And Funky Kumpa has uh, basically he's done the right thing. He's got out of the way and uh, forfeited $3.5 million bucks. So I guess that's something. Yes. Now, at the same time, uh, ASIC has said it will investigate the reasons why Dick Smith failed. And the revelation came during the ASIC annual forum. And when questions were put to ASIC's top executive chairman, Greg Metcraft, and commissioners Peter Kell, Kathy Armo, John Price, and Greg Tanzer, and ASIC chairman Greg Metcraft told the forum there was an issue for Dick Smith in terms of what he called administered trust and confidence. So they're now investigating why Dick Smith went bust. Yeah, there was an awful lot of stock that was pretty unsaleable, and you wonder why that happened. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, spending in Australia was flat for the second month in a row, according to the latest Commonwealth Bank business sales indicator. It's a clear indication of a slowdown in spending. Overall, there's been a progressive slowing in growth since September 2015. Spending then grew 0.6%. Then in October, it was 0.5%, 0.3% in November, 0.1% in December. Now, the BSI is an important economic indicator because of the scale of the CBA across the nation. And it's mildly concerning the year-on-year growth is slowing sharply, with February's result of 5.6%, a big drop from January's 6.3%. That's a real worry. It is, yeah. Now, uh, farmers are feeling very upbeat, according to the Rabobank Rural Confidence Survey. Uh, 34% expect conditions in the agricultural economy to improve over the coming year. That's up from 28% in the previous survey. Beef and sheep graziers are particularly confident with prices at around record level. Sugar producers are also more positive about the price outlook. And investment plans by farmers have now reached a four-year high. That's very good, yeah, and I think the uh, payback to the government in terms of tax on exports is uh, greater now from agriculture than resources. Well, yeah, that's going to be our biggest export industry. Now, uh, superannuation returns are going to be lower for longer as the financial market volatility becomes entrenched, according to consultancy Chant West, which says super funds are lucky to stem losses over a tumultuous February. And despite a strong share market recovery in recent weeks, and dollar surge is expected to have a negative impact on super returns in March. The most common type of super fund in Australia retreated 0.4% over February, while the Australian share market slumped 1.7%. And uh, February's performance meant super funds lost further ground for the financial year, bringing the return over the first eight months to a negative 1.6%, which is really bad. It is indeed. You know, the superannuation funds in Australia... It's a very good idea for, you know, self-funded uh, retirement, but terribly dependent on the share market. 
Totally, totally. Now, um, the RBA has been taken to task by the U.S. Treasury for talking down the Aussie dollar. Now, according to a report in, issued in Washington, the U.S. Representative Office of the International Monetary Fund in September expressed concern over the RBA's public statements on the direction of the exchange rate. Now, Gary, I laugh when I read this because the reality is that every country right now wants a lower exchange rate to boost its exports. And don't tell me the U.S. Fed actually managed the greenback in the way of the 2000 financial crisis and as a result they had near zero official interest rates for nearly a decade so who are they to talk that's right EO criticizing australia for jawboning and they're the worst of them anyway uh mrs stevens uh, yesterday defended the rba he said uh Occasionally, we have an opinion about a market price, which is not that unknown in central banking circles. <laughs> he was asked about the dollar rising from 70 cents to 76 cents. He said there was a risk that the currency might be getting a bit ahead of itself. And when he was asked whether the Aussie is overvalued or undervalued, he replied, yes. Then <laughs> <laughs> having his little joke. <laughs> that's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. That's nice, Leon. Thanks very much. Really good. Yes, yes. And, of course, uh, next week we're going to have a chat with George Lucas from Acorns Australia. That's right. George Lucas and Colton Dillian from the U.S., who's one of the founders of uh, Acorns Grow in the U.S., has now come to Australia. And in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.